0: Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter. Cameron Riley here. Uh, this is episode, I don't know, 70-something. Uh, I just wanted to uh, point out a couple of things. Uh, number one, I've got another guest on today, one of the listeners, Sean Brunshesh from just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, come on to talk about the riots and the protest and the police and his thoughts on what is going on and what should happen. Um, he did have a problem with his microphone. I think it was faulty. So from time to time, a word gets cut off. We were recording this over Zoom. Uh, I think it was a mic problem anyway. You know, hopefully it's not too annoying and you'll you'll be under, understand what's going on. It only happens every now and again. Secondly, for anyone wondering, where's Ray? Uh, he's fine. I think he's um, he's uh, in a little canoe somewhere out in the water. It's obviously, uh, he posted on Facebook, it's obviously a, either a very, very small canoe that they had custom made for him, like maybe one that you would put Woody from Toy Story in and they just made it for Ray, or he got a lot of pillows or something. Uh, they had to build like a box. Maybe you put like an apple crate in it for Ray to sit on I'm not sure. But uh, I just, when I was scheduling all these interviews, there were so many of them and I didn't have a lot of flexibility in my calendar, so I slotted people in where I could fit them in and then if Ray could make it, he did. If he couldn't, he couldn't and he didn't and sometimes I forgot to tell him because I'm running around like a blue-ass fly at the moment, so that's that. It wasn't deliberate, it was just the way things are, but he's fine. He hasn't been killed and buried in a shallow grave out in the backyard by D'Angelo yet, as far as I'm aware. That said, here we go with a uh, good chat with Paul, not uh, Paul, <laughs> uh, Sean from St. Paul. Well, Mr. Sean, introduce yourself to everybody. Uh, well, my name is
1: Sean Um, uh, I'm a welder, been living in Minnesota basically my entire life. I'm currently living in North St. Paul, which is about a 20-minute drive away from Minneapolis.
0: Bruinschase. Bruinshais, yes. Where is that it, derived from? It is a
1: bastardized uh, Scottish Gaelic French. Uh, <laughs>
0: basi-
1: basically, it, refer- it references the clan uh, brown. And then uh, Chase, which is, uh, I believe it's Scottish Gaelic. It's kind of like a calling. It's kind of like a calling phrase used for calling sheep to you.
0: <laughs> brown the brown sheep callers
1: yeah yeah my uh my wife has a very interesting family your wife yes
0: it's your wife's uh name so it's a name that
1: she and i came up with together we wanted something that was a little bit unique <sighs> she wanted to maintain her scottish Gaelic heritage and i was kind of indifferent to the whole thing i don't it's a last <laughs> name i don't really care what i sign on a legal documents
0: Really? So, you guys invented your own last yeah, name? Yeah, we, we
1: invented our own name, but Scottish Gaelic is a very hard language to translate. So, we actually did a mistranslation for our name. So, we
0: <laughs> excellent. <you> know, yeah. <laughs> Good on you. And uh, you seem to be sporting a uh, fairly bold SPQR tattoo on your chest. There, uh,
1: yes, I showed you this when uh, you had started your Cold War podcast. It's uh, a full Legionary oh, Eagle.
0: my God. God, that is but, hardcore. Yep,
1: unfortunately, it gets a little tedious explaining to everyone that it is not a white supremacist Nazi tattoo. <laughs> so uh, I, have to make sure to, I have to make sure to hide it up, especially since I also have, um, saw a few Viking Nordic elements into it, which kind of doubles down on that white supremacist deal. So.
0: How old were you when you got that done? Uh,
1: it would have been about four years ago, maybe five
0: so old enough to know better
1: old enough to know better but also (laughs) old enough to not give a fuck because it's something that i like and
0: you know just a ah. just a just a a small thing hidden somewhere (laughs) wouldn't have wouldn't have sufficed you had to go the whole full chest
1: uh, you couldn't just do the one podcast, you had to do the <laughs> six or seven podcasts.
0: <laughs> uh, Touche, sir. Touche. That's something my wife asks me all the time, too. Really? <laughs> you have to do seven podcasts? Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, um, where did you say you are?
1: I live in um, North St. Paul. So the Twin City metro area, there's St. Paul. You've already co- you talked with a fellow Minnesotan about this, but St. Paul is our capital. And then about a 10, 15-minute drive is Minneapolis. They're connected right next to each other.
0: so. And why aren't they just one city?
1: Um, I think it had to do mostly with St. Paul being the original capital. And Minneapolis just kind of sprouted. Oh, I had to stop. Sorry, I have a cat who chews on stuff. Uh, <laughs> it kind of started off with St. Paul as the main capital. Minneapolis sprouted as a just kept expanding. And now I think the two have two very different dynamics. Uh, politics when it comes to how they enforce policy so I don't know if they would ever actually become one short of a little mini city-state civil war
0: right So, um, obviously we're doing the show, uh, it is the 7th of June, 2020, where you are the 8th of June, where I am. Um, we, this is part of the series on the bullshit filler we've been doing for the last week, Mm -hmm. talking about, uh, what's going on over there and now around the world at the moment. We've had, we had protests, uh, across Australia on the weekend, um, I know one of my 19-year-old sons went to the one in Brisbane. I think it was estimated 30,000 people downtown in mm-hmm. Brisbane protesting Black Lives Matter and, and from an Australian perspective, mostly uh, talking about the treatment of our Indigenous population and their incarceration rates, et cetera, et cetera. So tell me, tell me uh, what's going on over in St. Paul at the moment, Minneapolis, uh, have the riots quietened down as it appears in the news, the violent side well, of the protests? So
1: starting last week, um, our governor, Tim uh, some uh, called into action the National Guard. Um, and since that point, things have settled down somewhat. There are still protests going throughout the city. It seems like most of the protests have... Second, let me put this cat in a different room. So as I was saying, so since the National Guard was rolled out, things have settled down to a certain degree. During the first week, um, or weekend, I should say, the, um, it was kind of a free-for-all. The police didn't have an adequate response to you know a sudden emergence of riots. And there were a lot of opportunists who had come in from out of state. And f- finding accurate sources has been very difficult because you know, it's not like we have news teams at every single block. So in a lot of the groups that I had followed um, they had saying, oh we have riders rocking Texas plates who have you know pallets of wood driving around the neighborhood and in uh, a number of neighborhoods that I a few neighborhoods that I helped patrol they had found tubs of gasoline just sitting around and we've also seen video clips of just random pile, uh, pallets of bricks just being left out so there seems to be and uh we had another case, I think this was also brought up in the first one that you did, or the second one, of a potential underco- undercover police cop who had started breaking the windows of our Oven of zone, which is just a car retailer. And so we've had undercover a lot of- a cop? The reasoning that they suspect that is, um, based on what he was wearing, they saw some cop, some cop issue gear, PPE, like gloves and whatnot. Uh, the, for- the ex-wife of this person believes that she recognized him and identified him as a policeman. And after he had broken the windows, he fled to a police precinct where he was let in. Now, I haven't, I, like I said, there, there have been a lot of mixed reports like this, so it's been really difficult to try and sort through what is real, what isn't, what is people just guessing, and what are, pe- are people seeing what they want to see and whatnot. But during the first week, they didn't really have a lot of organization. Well, since the National Guard has been called in, there has been at least, we've, we've seen a lot fewer incidents of just random arson and vandalism of property. There are still protests going very strong. There was actually a one last night, or yesterday, that started off in a park in North Minneapolis and followed to a police union station. And then we went to the mayor of Minneapolis's uh, house, which is in Northeast Minneapolis.
0: Some of the stories I've seen over the last few days uh, coming out of the U.S., suggests that even though the protests have been mostly peaceful in the last uh, few days, since the middle of last week, say, uh, the police have continued to be uh, relatively aggressive and there's instances of violence. Of course, there was the old man in, I think, Brooklyn who was pushed over. Is that sort of thing going on in your area as well? Are the cops uh, maintaining their level of aggression towards the peaceful protesters?
1: The cops are. The cops ha- are still maintaining a degree of aggression. As I said, it has calmed down somewhat since National Guard has been called in, but rubber bullets being filed, fired as well. Um, and let's see. I have seen conflicting accounts saying that police and different areas throughout the, throughout the country have been regularly making habit of destroying medic tents, destroying uh, goods and whatnot. Uh, again, some of these are verified, some aren't.
0: I saw uh, some video footage of one medical station with water, uh, cops stabbing bottles of, mm-hmm. hundreds of bottles of water with knives and trashing yep. yeah, uh, food well. supplies and some stuff, yeah. So you said before that uh, you've been patrolling an area. In what capacity?
1: Uh, so the area the area that I had helped patrol well, had already started calming down somewhat. But in, there have been a lot of neighborhood patrols set up, again, as a response to the fact that we've seen a lot of people who are out-of-town opportunists and whatnot. The area that I had been patrolling was a truck, several trucks that had been spotted with piles of wood. And we, we, had, we there had already been a um, Cases where they would basically go up to any business, set up this wood, light it on fire, and then leave. And in that very area, we had seen a mold of cocktails, or at least one or two, just sitting around, um, sitting against a fence. A child, a random child had found it. Um, so, so uh, community watches have been, have been going set up basically everywhere. Um, it's gotten to the point now where, unless they're in huge groups or sitting in you know, bastions of, like, police precincts, we're not seeing, you know, police regularly patrol anymore. We're not seeing them drive up and down streets. And so we've relied a lot on community action to take over that.
0: And what's your theory on who these people are with the the wood and the bricks and the Molotov cocktails coming in from interstate? Are they on the left, on the right? Uh, they just... What's, what's their motivation?
1: Well... <clears throat> Obviously, it's, it's there's always going to be a mixed group of people with this. Some people are just opportunists; they want to vandalize, they want to destroy. Uh, we have seen some evidence from um, from from Grapevine Communication that there have been some white supremacist groups, such as the Proud Boys, who have made it a point to come in into our state. Um, and then, similar with uh, KKKs, people who people who have seen uh, the Ku Klux, you know, w- with their hoodies whether that, that's a genuine KKK group or someone who's choosing to wear that disguise as a means of you know, hiding what they're doing or trying to put off the blame on someone else, that remains to be seen. But mm. uh, again, I do stress this enough, it's very hard to get solid accounts of this because when these people mm. destroy something, they immediately bolt. Even mm-hmm. if you have camera footage, there's only so much you can do with ads.
0: Interesting thing about that is you're a local living there um, acknowledging that it's really hard to know who the troublemakers are and what's going on. And it reminds me of when we're covering stories like the Syrian civil war Mm -hmm. or what's happening on the ground in Venezuela uh, or in Hong Kong protests, you always get uh, a variety of stories of who's to blame, who started what. And the, the Western media usually takes a particular side in that story, <clears throat> and I you know I know f- often find myself saying, well, listen, there's, there's gonna be propaganda coming from both sides. It's incredibly difficult, if not impossible, for us to really get a sense of uh, who's starting this and why, what's going on. Let's not fall for an easily crafted, digestible narrative here. It's probably a lot more complicated. And I guess you you guys are getting a uh, um, real-life uh, experience of that right now, as you say. So imagine when it's transplanted from another country, when it's a foreign country and a foreign language and groups that we don't understand and, and motivations that we in the West don't fully understand how, how difficult it is, then I think this, this should be a learning exercise for all of us, mm-hmm. again, in um, how... Reluctant, we should be to fall for simplistic narratives around issues like this. Well, and
1: that's um, that's actually a very difficult way that we, as humans, are designed. I think you've brought this up before, where it takes mental energy to think about something. You want you want to compartmentalize. You want short, simple answers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when you try to break down this whole the whole idea of systemic racism. It's not like we can just put in one policy and say, no more, no more racism, and then things are done. There mm. are countless interwoven reasons why this is. I mean, I've got pages of notes here that i I set up just in case anything came up for this interview or whatever. But it, that's, that's something that's been very difficult with this is people want to – when they see a story or a news source shared, they want a knee-jerk response to it. Mm. And it's hard to not invest yourself emotionally and try to sit back and say, hey, how can we verify this? Mm. And, you know, I mean, one of the best ways we verify information is, is I don't want to jump on, not saying jump on the bandwagon, but if we have 20 people who are, who are corroborating evidence, that doesn't mean that the one person who is against that is wrong. It just means that, okay, we have, we, we're pretty sure that these 20 people are right. We have to hold in that s- s- slight sliver that maybe they're wrong. But that's one of the best ways we verify information. So that's kind of what I've been sorting through with this is on these various groups. When people share something, we try and get people to corroborate. Okay, has anyone seen this? If you have the license plates, tell us where you last saw this plate, mm. so we can follow mm. it.
0: Mm-hmm. So talk to me about, from your perspective, Sean. Um, apart from the obvious, the the death of George Floyd. What, what's the root cause of the the flare ups? In the sort of the the Minneapolis, Minnesota region know, over the last couple of weeks, what's 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 underneath well, that? So I can
1: definitely go into uh, so, some of the things that have been you very have been specific to Minnesota. Um, the thing that I'd want to cover for uh, stats Sorry. and data.
0: Sorry, you, your audio dropped out. Can you start that again? Uh, yeah. Sorry, my I'm
1: relying on a bad mic. Uh, so. I have a lot of things that I can go into with, the, with some of the causes in Minnesota or some of the root problems we've had in Minnesota. I think something important to mention, though, um, just as a general rule of thumb, is when we're looking at stats and data, it's very important to try and understand what exactly that information means and not take it for granted. So, you know, if you if, say last year we have 100 cops who killed people, and then this year we're finding 1,000 cops killed people, does that mean we suddenly had an increase in cops killing people or does it mean that it's some other variable that's affecting that are we reporting better do are we using body cams now which is just showing it and so i think that's important to understand when we're looking at this problem of police brutality and you know systemic racism is that it doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden it's all happening in the past 20 years what's the major thing that's changed well everyone has cameras now
0: mm. well and just in the even, this is the surprising thing, like the, the, goal, the old guy in Brooklyn who was pushed over, when the cops initially reported that, they apparently said that he f- tripped and fell. I mean, they're still, even in mm. the middle of all of this, lying about their acts of violence. I mean, completely, I don't know, oblivious to the fact that these things are being captured on camera, or there's a high probability they're going to be captured on camera, and these guys are going to look even worse as a result of their lying. Mm. So, you know, we're seeing so many instances, even after the, the protest started of cops committing acts of violence and lying about it, as the cops obviously did in the George Floyd case as well. It's, it, it suggests that this is a, that cops initiating the violence and then lying about it seems to be so ingrained and systemic that they can't even cut it out in the middle of protests about this very issue.
1: Well, and that, that's, <clears throat> there, there's been a huge uh, push as, I, I don't know if it's um, exactly where the idea started, but at least for the past two years and certainly in the past week or two, there's been a huge push to just completely, basically abolish our police system and start over with something new. Um, I mean, I, I can talk into some of the ideas later about why it is that uh, police, I think even today with all the cameras still feel like they can get away with things. But uh, I mean, going back to uh, some of the issues that we've had in Minnesota, is um, I had talked with you earlier in an e, or I'd expressed in my email that you know this whole thing has been kind of a little cultural shock the past few years for me because uh, Minnesota is a northern state, and at least in the standards of the United States, we're fairly liberal and progressive. And uh, having to look into this, a lot of the history of our states, it's kind of been eye catching for me how much uh, systemic issues. Uh, when you look at like housing, for example, uh, there, there's a policy called red uh, redlining. So like, um, as part of FDR's new deal, uh, he had incited the federal government to create a homeowner's uh, loan corporation, which was responsible for creating grading maps across our metro. And basically they had set, up, set, up, set it up into districts and grade it from, I think it's like, I think the scale's like A to D or E or something like that with little numerals to further clarify that. And these the gra- these gradings were based on criteria like property values, uh, the age of properties, depreciation, and like the racial and ethnic makeups. Well, the grading district predominantly graded African American districts D, which is the worst you can get, and whites as uh, whites districts as A, which is the best. And you know these districts could affect uh, everything from say increase in rent to your ability to get mortgages and whatnot. So in the 50s and 60s, we start to see Uh, Whites being able to, you know, buy buy houses and build uh, equity, while African-Americans are still stuck on a rental, uh, on rental properties. And so from this point, you start seeing whites being able to generate, you know, generational wealth. And African-Americans just never got that ability to do that. And these districting maps were even used further to further establish our highway system. So I had said before that St. Paul and Minneapolis are right next to each other with a little bit connecting them. Uh, the, there's a highway that connects them is um, I-94. And that I-94 actually went straight through an African-American district. And that basically destroyed those communities. So they, you know, businesses were basically told, you have to get up and move. Uh, sorry, we're not going to pay for that. So you have to figure out payment yourself. Mm. And you know, the city planner at the time, George Harold, Propose an alternate route that's just a little bit north, that basically the only thing that was there was railroads. But the city didn't want to compete with railroad businesses, so they basically just said, sorry, we're going straight through the African-American district because it's cheaper.
0: Mm-hmm. So and what you're saying here the, is that these um, instances of systemic uh, oppression um probably as a result of racism, has made it incredibly difficult for the African-American population there to get access to the same kinds of wealth-building opportunities that obviously have generational... advantages if you know your great-grandparents were able to buy property and the value of the property went up and that increased the wealth base of your parents and then they were able to buy property and they were able to treat you better you know there are uh, the, the the white people on average in that area were able to uh, prosper more particularly during the boom times american boom times the 50s and 60s than the uh african-american population were
1: uh, yeah yeah d- uh, definitely and you know th- this problem gets further compounded when you look at you know e- e- even things like schools i don't know how the rest of the world does things but a large part of the us we fund our schools through local property taxes so you know if you live in one of the po- one of the poor districts i.e. minority black then you get far less funding for the resources you need that could be anything from you know computers to adequate teachers so then you get to a case where african americans aren't able to get sufficient education they don't get to go to college White people do, and mm-hmm. I mean this. This branches out into everything that people don't even think about, it's like how uh, in the Thirteenth Amendment, which is the amendment that bans slavery except as criminal punishment, so you know your War on Drugs already covered this, where African Americans are especially targeted for these drug crimes. They go to prison, and they're they're forced to do slave labor, essentially, which is you know a little fine side fact for anyone who buys anything made in America. Doesn't mean it wasn't made with slavery. Victoria's Secrets, uh, their garments were made in prison with prison labor. Really? Um, huh. uh, then you know you get into things like uh, gerrymandering, which is you know di- di- uh, drawing di- voting districts for you know, which is basically uh, sorry for voting districts, and it, bo- both both liberals and progressives, Democrats, conservatives do this. Um, but you know, basically, you, would see, you, you can see a lot of maps which are essentially drawn to negate the ability of African Americans to vote. And this is further impounded by, especially during COVID, with a lot of uh, voting facilities closing down so that, if, so that you may potentially have to drive 100 or 200 miles to get to your nearest polling place. And you know, as African Americans are especially targeted for you know, drug crimes and whatnot, and they become felons because of that, they lose the ability to vote. Some places give felons the right to vote back eventually, but mm. most places don't.
0: What's what's the situation in Minnesota? Uh,
1: in Minnesota? Mm. Um, I don't know the... Um, as far as I'm aware, because um, as far as I'm aware, the felons do gain the right to vote back. Mm. Uh, once they've served their sentence, um, I would have to look into that. I don't know off the top of my head.
0: Mm.
1: And... Um, Then you even also have to look into things like how our population is spread out. Uh, Minnesota is roughly uh, 81% white, and 3% of that is African American, which actually puts us under the national standard of about 14%. And uh, when you look at the demographic breakdown for where the population is spread out, African Americans are predominantly centered around the Twin City metro area, which is I think 6,500 square miles, give or take a bit. So what this what this essentially means is that most of our population is in these this too small city area. The rest of our state is predominant. So you 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 get you run into a case of you know a good chunk of our state doesn't really have regular interaction with African with minorities or African Americans, and I think in many ways that kind of skews the perception of like these riots and protests. Is a lot of people who are live outside this metro area struggle to understand why they think you know, protests and violent riots are in any way condoned or justified.
0: Mm. Can, you, can you talk to me for a second about um, the conversation that I had with Andrew Hout, um, I think the third episode about this last week, and then my subsequent conversation with Chrissy was about this idea that Americans generally are an angry people um they they, there's a there's a growing level of just societal anger and frustration in america um what are your thoughts on that do you uh, first of all have you ever been outside of the united states uh
1: yes i've predominantly on vacation i haven't actually lived outside um i've mostly gone into like italy i really haven't yeah <laughs> no I really't lived outside, I really haven't lived outside uh, the u s did you like italy it, italy was it was phenomenal. it was definitely a different a very big culture shock, like seeing how places i again you talked with this uh, with your wife on the first episode about the weird the culture shock of going to a different country where things aren't open twenty four seven and you know like you have until six or seven to get food and you know diners just randomly close them I and you you have to just get by in these small little grocers. And uh, I did, I made my, I didn't make my way to any of the, uh, a lot of the museums or exhibits. I mostly explored ruins. Uh, Antica mm-hmm. was probably the most beautiful place that I explored. Mm-hmm. That's
0: um, great. So, okay. So you've been out of the country, mostly to Italy, which is a very different, um, very different pace to America and to Australia too. I think, uh, Italians generally have, a uh, they think in terms of thousands of years, not uh, next week. Mm. They have very sort of, eh, don't worry about it. We'll get there eventually. Everyone just relax, have a drink, and have something to wait. So, don't worry about it. We'll get there. Um, so tell me about uh, anger in America. Do you agree with the premise that Americans tend to be an angry people in your experience? In my experience, I think yes.
1: I think we are... We are trained very much on a dichotomy of us versus them. And you know, I think that very that very easily starts when we become in any way exposed to politics. You know, it's always Democrats versus Republicans. And everyone urgently one side is always frantically saying, Oh, we have to urgently get that two-seat majority so that we can basically do whatever the fuck we want. And when you look into and you know, you've covered countless history countless history podcasts, and we're very bred on this idealized image that's fed to us in the media of how things should be a certain way and when things don't conform to that certain way you get angry or upset especially when you look within your group I've seen you know even within my own within my own groups I I tend to be very more liberal progressive whatever and we know within my own groups who preach you know openness and tolerance you know tolerance and accepting of all there have been there's even a lot of minor divisions that come with if you use the wrong term for something or if a person isn't 100 not believe in compromise, I mean a, a very good example. I think it has been around this whole issue of, de- of defund the police and abolish it rather than seek reformation. I mean there there, there are a lot of pros and cons to both arguments, but in the uh, in the walk uh, or in the protest that we had last uh, yesterday, the march had taken us to the mayor to the mayor's house, who was summoned to come out. And give a very solid yes or no answer on whether or not he would abolish the, abolish the police. And that's a very difficult question to answer on the spot. And he basically got vilified for not immediately being 100% yes or no on the issue. And you know there there was there was no room for him to try and explain the complexities of look I only have so much power I have to work with these other groups this is something that could take as it could take 10 20 40 years to implement it's not like it's an overnight issue there was none of that it was a very yes or no thing and however much I agreed or disagreed on the issue it just kind of struck me that there wasn't any room for negotiation and I see that on the left and the right it's not a Republican thing it's not a Democrat thing it's a I think it's. I think it's just at a very core a human thing. It's. It's a very. It's always an us versus them. We like small, simple things. We don't like having to to negotiate and give something up, especially when we feel like it's a moral imperative that it is a certain way.
0: Yeah, look, Chrissy's Chrissy and I over the years have talked about how in uh, the U.S. you you are encouraged to develop sort of tribal cultures very early on uh, one of the examples i know she's always used is uh into school sports oh, i forgot to take my blood pressure man i mean i gotta take my blood pressure medication sure gotta remember Got an alarm Cause i forget mm. um uh, it, it, you know, it's the uh, school teams—this team versus that team—and you have to go and high school and support your team, and you've got to wear the colors and wave the flag. And then you have the um, the the what do you call your flag ceremony that you do every morning? The Pledge of Allegiance. That, and then you have all of your fucking parades and people waving flags and. You know Fourth of July stuff, and where Chrissy comes from in Utah, they do I think Pioneers Day around about the same time every year, mm. later July. It's this. Uh, see, in Australia, we have very little of that. I won't say none, but very little. We have a we have Australia Day on January twenty sixth, which is increasingly called Invasion Day. It's supposedly celebrates commemorates whatever when the europeans arrived here in 1770 but um you know uh, increasingly that is seen as uh, distasteful to celebrate that because it was when they invaded the indigenous population mm-hmm. i've been against australia day celebrations for a long time um then we have thing we have anzac day which is usually uh to celebrate our uh, military adventures around the world, um, which is sort of a dawn ceremony, but we don't do we, we don't go in for big parades for those sorts of things. I mean, uh, Australians look for any excuse to take a day off and get drunk, typically. <laughs> um, so it's just uh, Aussies will get will get pissed and have a barbecue at the drop of a hat, <clears throat> but. Up until recently, we have seen in the last 20 years, there seems to have been, a by our conservative governments, there seems to have been a deliberate push in our conservative media, Murdoch media and that kind of stuff here, to encourage people to become more Americanized with having flags out the front of your house and flags on your car for Anzac Day or Australia Day and celebrating the Australian flavour when i was growing up in the 70s and 80s it just wasn't a thing we didn't do that it, it would have it still strikes me as very much like a nazi rally when i see uh people driving around wearing flags or painting themselves with flags it uh, and particularly when i go to the us wherever i'm on the in the us in general with the amount of flag worship that you have over there and particularly if I happen to be there on the 4th of July terrifies the fuck out of me at one level. Hmm. Honestly, Chrissy always thinks it's weird that I get so skittish in America around these things. Um, I think the longer she lives here, the more she's starting to appreciate it. But for me, it's, it's almost this cult like observance of, uh, America as a concept, the American flag, the American myth, um, uh, I find it deeply disturbing, um, and I think Chrissy's always thought I was just bunging it on, making it up, he's being exaggerating it. But I'm not. I find it. It's like for me, I always say it's like being dropped in the middle of a Nuremberg rally in the '30s. For me, it's like what the fuck is going on here? Mm-hmm. So I think. But the point is this: this sort of tribalism, us versus them. I think is is inculcated in Americans from a very young age. You do the Pledge of Allegiance, and then you get involved in team school sports and all that kind of stuff, uh, your school versus the other school. I mean, we have inter-school sports here, but it's, you know, we don't have crowds. Either, the one team goes and plays another team. You don't have hundreds of kids on the sidelines chanting and doing, um, what do you call those girls that do? Cheerleaders? Cheerly, <laughs> I don't even know. We don't have all of that. I mean, it's funny to watch it on American TV and movies, but none of that exists here. So I think America's got a very unique culture in that way that in, that 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 um, first of all breeds that us versus them mentality. And when you when your brain has been engineered to think that way, it needs expression. So then it becomes Democrats versus Republicans, or capitalism versus communism or christians versus muslims or you know whatever the dichotomy or the the manufactured dichotomy is that um the 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 uh, elite want people to to fall into
1: and i think um i i sometimes wonder if part of the reason that that cult of personality has developed is because we more or less are isolated we're surrounded in t- you know, by two oceans, north and south are allies who basically do whatever we tell a a good majority of the world does what we tell them. But, you know, we've never really been had any sort of foreign power on our own soil. We've never really had equal trading partners, although China has pretty much overtaken us well at this point. And so I sometimes wonder if, you know, perhaps that's part of the reason that our cult has developed to this degree as we've never had anyone who's really humbled us before. I mean, you know, say what you want about some of the skirmishes we lost, you know, Vietnam or whatever, but ultimately it didn't really impact us to any significant degree.
0: Well, the oceans thing, I mean, Australia is surrounded by an ocean as well, but up until my lifetime, I think we just thought of ourselves as um, little brother to the United Kingdom Mm. we've become more Americanized. And one of the reasons why I spend so much time talking about the problems that America has, it, A, because America is the, you know, the, the global superpower and it affects all of us, but B, because I'm concerned about the push in Australia to push us more in the direction of America, because I don't think that's necessarily an entirely good thing. I think America's coming apart at the seams. And, uh, and well, we well, I mean, we've, we've-
1: We've seen that exact we've seen that exact same thing happen in with the Brexit as well, with Boris Johnson and a number of their number of their conservative leaders, I don't know what the party is called, who've been pushing to do a more United States style healthcare system. Yeah. And
0: yeah, and we you know, we've been moving in that direction here as well over the last twenty five mm-hmm. years, this push towards privatization of assets, uh, publicly owned assets, putting them into the hands of corporations and private individuals running those corporations so more of the more of the uh, profit goes into the hands of corporations and stays out of the, the public hands. Um, so anyway back to anger Look, I, I think the anger is an interesting thing and I think this is uh, seems to be a, a, an explanation for one of the things that's going on just this general, anger that Americans have because you've been told your entire lives that you're the greatest people that have ever lived and the greatest country in the world. And you're the best. And then of course, you know, the, the majority of people in the United States aren't doing well financially. They don't have access to uh, reasonably priced advanced education. They don't have access to reasonably priced healthcare um, they don't have the benefits that at some level you must know that other civilized countries around the world not only have but have had for 50 years. Um, at some level, this this has to create a level of confusion and anger in the American people, I would imagine.
1: Well, I mean, I think definitely so. We're, one of the things that we are bred on from, from infancy is that America is a meritocracy. We're not haves and have-nots. We're haves and soon to haves. So you know anyone can be a millionaire, I and mean, we have we have TV programs dedicated to what to do with your hypothetical lottery winnings. I mean, it's we 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 kind of, we're kind of bred with this belief that we can accomplish and have anything we want if we're just willing to put in the grace to do it. And mm. frankly, for many of us, it's simply not possible. They're mm. always they're always you know they're always your you know, your your Bill Gates or your Elon Musk. But even then, they still grew up with very unique circumstances that aren't available for the rest of us. You know, Bill Gates was, he he had wealthy parents who basically paid for all of his schooling. So he had the luxury of basically not having to work at all and just sitting in his garage and fiddling around. Most of us can't do that. Mm. And, you know, I can only speak as a white person. I can't speak for the minorities who, as, you know, I've already explained with some of the systemic problems, they have access to even less opportunity and resources than I have.
0: And, And, you know, Bill Gates was born with a very high IQ. Bill's a very smart guy. I've Mm -hmm. I've, You know, I've met Bill. I've spent time around Bill. I've worked for Bill. I've worked with a lot of people who work very closely with him. There's no doubt Bill's an extremely bright guy. Uh, And even then, there was a lot of luck involved in the early days of Microsoft. I mean, um, I don't know how familiar you are with his early years, but... um, he uh in the early days when he, ibm were looking to make a microcomputer um uh, his mother was on the board of ibm so a little bit of luck involved in that and uh they went to him she she asked him if he knew where they because he was involved in uh, the early software um, uh, industry, but he was making applications, not operating systems. So mm-hmm. they were looking for an operating system when she went to him and said, Do you know where we can get an operating system for this co- microcomputer? And he sent them to somebody else. Yeah, I know a guy. He had a, a guy who had a thing called QDOS, quick and dirty operating system. So the IBM guys went to meet with the guy who owned QDOS and he blew them off because he was sort of, uh, you know, uh, early software punk. Um, I think he was flying his uh hobby crop duster at the time the IBM reps turned up guy didn't even turn up for the meeting he just blew them off he's <laughs> like fuck you IBM this isn't the, you know the the uh, late 70s early 80s and uh, so they went back to Bill and said uh, guy didn't show up got anyone else that we can talk to and Bill said um, leave it with me Bill contacted the guy bought kudos off him and went back to IBM and said okay let's do a deal I, I, I've got it now and it's just, if the guy turned up for the meeting, there would be no, you know, MS-DOS. It would have mm-hmm. been something else and that that whole story would be completely different. So, you know, so a lot of luck involved in these success stories that people usually don't know about, as well as being born with a high IQ and being born into a, you know, a relatively wealthy and privileged environment, all those sorts of things. You're right. So, yes, yeah, so Americans are brought up believing they can all, that you can all be rich one day. It reminds me of that book um, uh, that I always talk about, uh, Deer Hunting with Jesus. Um, that guy talked about when he went back to his hometown, uh, just shocked to find that uh, all of these poor, well, you know, uh, uh, friends of his that he'd grown up with that were working in <clears throat> manufacturing dead-end environments were all voting... Reagan, they were all sort of Reagan Republicans. And when he was trying to feel, well, why are you voting against your own interests? General feeling was they all thought they were going to be rich one day and they wanted to make sure that when they were rich, they paid low taxes and that the government was <laughs> off their back. And uh, like, it's, it's it does seem to be a strange uh, American idea that we're all going to be rich one day.
1: I mean, I think a lot of it does have to do with, again, with how the propaganda is fed to us. We're only fed the success stories you know, for every Mm. one, for every Bill Gates story, we're told, we're not told about the 100 people who tried that same thing and failed.
0: And the 999 people more like (laughs) it. You know, yes.
1: Oh, well, I'm optimistic. Uh, (laughs) um, So I mean, that's, it's all part, it's all part of this American mentality. And I, I think it's one of the things that where I think we would benefit more greatly, if we actually had neighbors that you know, like if we had like a Euro- Europe style neighbors, which, you know, if you exclude all the other historical reasons why things would change if we had that. But I mean, if we had neighbors who had different systems of governance, you know, uh, our, our country is insanely huge. It's bigger than Europe and like the top half of Africa combined.
0: Australia is bigger than the continent. Oh, no,
1: that, that's right. That's right. In terms of landmass, you're bigger. That's right. Because of the uh, the US maps always make Australia look smaller so that we can appear bigger. That's right.
0: And you you do have neighbours. You've got Canada and Mexico with different systems of government.
1: Canada, I think most people just look at look at as America light with a splat with a tiny splash <laughs> of socialism, and Mexico, we're just we're just fed that they're just nothing but drug hotels and enchiladas. That's basically what we're fed. They so have food it and wouldn't matter ourselves.
0: how many neighbours you had, you would dismiss them as being irrelevant anyway. That's I, like,
1: I, 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 I suppose I am. We are it's pretty just American exceptionalism, right? yep yep everything's wrong with everything else not us
0: yeah i mean that's the other thing that uh, it always as a foreigner always strikes me as amusing about america is whenever uh, the conversation comes up about gun control or health care reform or those sorts of things we go well this is how other countries do it the american response is always whether it's people on the left or the right the response is always well it doesn't matter how you do it because you're not america america is very different we're very, we're very different. We've we got have
1: unique circumstances. Yeah,
0: yeah, we're very unique. You can't, we can't learn anything from anybody. We have to do our own thing. It's, um, it's a, it's a fascinating mental illness that your country suffers from. Yeah. Anyway, um, so let's let's start to wrap this up. I got another show. I've got to go do my actual okay. one that makes me money, Sean. Before I go, I want to ask you though. What's with the uh, CPR doll behind you?
1: Oh yeah, I'm um, I'm working to get certified in first aid CPR, and because of COVID, they just dropped off the mannequins and whatnot. So
0: good for you, man! Something I've always thought I should do, particularly when you have kids. The first thing you should do, but I've never mm. been uh, good enough to do it. And then the uh, the nicely color coded, I think, VHS videos on your bookshelf.
1: Uh, VHS videos
0: huh? uh, VHS things? What, what's on your bookshelf behind you there? It doesn't look like books, they look like they're plasticky No, that's oh, all books, uh, no, it's all books. Uh, Okay, what, what are the nice lastly uh, organized books on the end there? It looks like a series What are you reading? Oh, what you that's, got all the, there? Uh,
1: that's all the Percy Jackson stuff uh, Percy Jackson series, which is the Rick Riordan series about gods and demigods and then your book Psychopath Epidemic is sitting on top of them
0: Oh. Oh, wow. wow! I got you. I got you. Oh, really? I can't see that from here. I couldn't tell it. Oh, yeah. I, was, I went. To, we went to have lunch with a mate in Brisbane yesterday. Ian, Cath, and um, he had my book on his bookshelf. It was the first time I've actually seen my book on somebody else's bookshelf. It was, it was uh, funny actually. So, um, talk to me a little bit as we wrap up, Sean, if you can, about if you were the president. Of the United States, or the governor of Minnesota, what would you be doing right now to solve some of these problems?
1: Well, it's um, the 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 big the big things that we've been looking at have been like reform versus reform, reform, reformational change versus you know as just changing policies as opposed to completely restructuring how we do things. Ideally, I would like to just completely restructure the system, just blow it up, start from the ground up. But I haven't. Which system it, are you
0: talking about? Like
1: the entire regarding policing. I think that because that's what the protest rights have been doing. So that's what I've been focusing on. And I don't know enough about. I haven't researched enough about. You know how would we how we would do a no police system. So what I've mostly been looking into is reformational change. And I think ultimately the big umbrella issue that we look at when we look into this issue is accountability. The systems that we have in place for accountability just. Aren't aren't being enforced? They don't exist, et cetera. So, like, I, I have a, a list of five or six things here that I wrote down. Uh, so, one thing would be body cameras. They're in regular use in more and more precincts, but there's no real punishment for turning turning them off, or re- there's no repercussion for that. So, I would I you know put it so there's like a charge of tampering with evidence if you touch your camera once it's been turned on.
0: Oh, it was malfunctioning, technical malfunction.
1: I mean, there I was, the guy's head just ran right into my camera. So, uh, then uh, the police unions, uh, another policy i changes. is the police unions have qualified immunity, which is kind of like their equivalent of the Good Samaritan law, where if you're attempting to do something in good faith, you can't be sued for it. So, you know, in the course of their duties, it makes it very difficult to sue them because, oh, they're, they're acting in good faith. They're trying to do their job. Accidents happen during dr- coursework. Uh, so that's something that you would have to, I'd have to change. I'd want to change and renegotiate. Uh, but
0: that's, I, mean, I mean, it's a fair point. I mean, I, I, uh, I look, I, I would, I would hate to be a cop. I don't envy cops anywhere in the world. I think it's a incredibly uh, difficult job to do. Usually underpaid, putting your life on the line Balance, you know, having to deal with people on a genuinely having to deal with people every day who are probably mentally unstable, hopped up on ice or crack or some booze that are that are not functioning properly, and you're having mm-hmm. to stop them from hurting other people, stop them from hurting you and your colleagues, stop them from hurting themselves if you can. It's an incredibly complex and difficult situation, I feel. For cops, and I and I assume that a large percentage of cops everywhere are, are good people trying to do the best that they can do in incredibly difficult circumstances. Um, but there are there are psychopaths in every profession, and policing is one of those professions that you would have to imagine that psychopaths would uh, be attracted to because because it, it offers them opportunities for uh, personal power. And, uh, uh, and, and, you know, they're probably the ones that cause the problems. They're the, probably the ones that are driving a lot of this stuff. And then if they get into positions of management in policing, they get to influence the uh, policing culture in that, Area which itself can become psychopathic and then mm. can have an influence on what the good cops can and can't do, which is straight out of The Wire. Have you ever watched The Wire, season one? I haven't seen mm. it, now. Oh, man, you would love it. Mm. Sit, You know, watch The Wire, at least season one, if not all five seasons. But, mm. you know, David Simon, who was a, a journalist in um, Baltimore, who, who he and his colleague wrote this, um, you know, it sort of talks about there are good cops out there trying to do the right thing, but they're just hampered by the, the sort of uh, corrupt politicians, the corrupt chief of police, uh, who creates the the rules by which they need to operate by and how they're measured and incentivized. Doesn't matter if they want to go; the good cops want to go and address systemic issues at a ground level and work with the community and work with the people to try and implement systemic improvements if you're only incentivized by how many uh, busts you do this week or how many heads you knock then you know your opportunity even as a good cop to do good work is extremely limited you're trapped in a in a uh, malfunctioning system so yeah, I think it's I think reforming policing is incredibly important, but but complicated and difficult.
1: Well, and and, and much like the the systemic racism that afflicts our country, it equally affects the, the policing. I, you know, I come from a I come from a family that is largely partially military. My stepfather is a police officer who's told me or ex cop I should say who's told some of the stories that he's had to go with, and you know I, I think one of the best things we can do is just keep trying to change accountability and have independent independent factions that help muster, rein in some of the more corrupt elements of the force. Like, uh, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of uh, police misconduct is done by internal investigations. You know, the police basically trying to police themselves, which I don't think is a good way to do things. You know, when you look at like, when you try to prosecute a, an officer, it's especially difficult because prosecutors regularly have to work with police to gather evidence and to, Get testimony. So most of the time, prosecutors don't really want to prosecute cops because they have to work with them. Um, yeah. Here's, uh, there was a, um, where is it? You know, when when we've, uh, let's see, when we've looked at data, uh, let's see, I got it here somewhere. I, I can't find it out right now, but uh, Philip Stenson, who's a researcher, actually tried looking into uh, police, uh, p- uh, police officers, and he did this by doing a decades-long research. He basically had to set up uh, 48 Google alerts. That's basically you know, looking for headlines is how he conducted most of this research. I can send you the document. It's like a 700-page document. But basically, he concluded that of the close to 7,000 cases of you know, police shootings, only about 99 of them were actually uh, – arrested arrested and only like 35 of them were actually charged with a crime and those crimes were rarely if ever murder it was typically negligent uh, uh, homicide or involuntary manslaughter
0: yeah i think i saw some reporting on that research recently yeah so that's a you know, that's a huge problem
1: yeah and then you know it's uh, even just uh, things like um uh, you know working to demilitarize our police uh, there's a federal program, 1033, where that requires, the, not not lets the Department of Defense choose, it requires them to make available to local police, uh, you know, access military hardware. So, you know, a few examples I have, a small town in Michigan, and uh, in Indiana, police used uh, the program to acquire MARPs, which are basically huge armored troop carriers. And they also got things like night vision scopes, camouflage fatigues, uh, and dozens of M16 rifles. Uh, we have a case of, um, like in Bloomington, Georgia, where they acquired four grenade launchers. Local, pl- and uh, like a population of 23, 2700 with grenade launchers. And, you know, I mean, then it, it, it there's just so many others that I would have to get into. I'd, I'd need another hour to get into all of them with you. But Galatian training, uh, the Minneapolis police uh, is one of many precincts that engages in warrior training which is basically training designed to teach the cop that they need to approach every situation as life or death. People who you encounter, they're not your friends. They are potential hostiles who are looking to take your life. You need to be ready for immediate action. Mm. And you know, th- that's something that we've continuously seen, you know, we're giving them military hardware We're teaching them to treat civilians like hostiles. You know, e- even when you look at like uh, in Minneapolis, or early on in the protest last week, when I said that they were using, you know, tear gas and rubber bullets, um rubber bullets are not designed are designed to be used a certain way you're supposed to hit them so that they hit the ground and then ri- hit the ground and then they ricochet up and hit the person we've been basically that's not how police use them they shoot them directly at a person and when it comes in contact with the skull that can fracture the skull sending shards into your brain killing you when it goes into an eye socket you're basically dead if you if you, if you survive
0: yeah one of my one of my kids was telling me the other day that he saw footage of some girl or woman taking a rubber bullet to an eye and her eye exploding mm-hmm. on uh, YouTube or something or on TikTok recently. All right, Sean. Well, you yeah, look, I, I, um, I know I'm probably a uh, broken record on this, but I think that the, one of the things that we could do is get every cop and everyone in police management command to set a psychopath test the first the first thing is to identify who are the psychopaths that we have because psychopaths by the very definition of psychopathy have extremely low levels of empathy um, they are the people that are inclined to commit acts of violence whether it's physical violence or or and any other kind of violence towards other people um and i actually i did an interview last week for the Psych- psychopath epidemic podcast that i haven't had time to uh put online yet but it's with a neuroscience researcher in richmond virginia who studies the brains of psychopaths and he was talking about how The pleasure centers, his research indicates the pleasure centers of the brain are activated in psychopaths when they hurt somebody else. So it's not just low levels of empathy, it's they get enjoyment. They feel good when they hurt other people. Hmm. Um, So, you know, I think a big thing that we can do, and it's an easy thing, and it doesn't require reinventing policing, and it doesn't require necessarily new legislation it's just a new form of governance is recognized that there are going to be psychopaths in our police force and in command and we need to identify them and develop policies for what do we do with psychopaths in the police force i mean we can uh fire them we can assign them to desk jobs we can have them allow them to stay in the field or stay in their positions, but have them regularly monitored and partner them up with somebody who has passed a psychopath test, who's confirmed to not be a psychopath, to keep an eye on them. You know, there's a range of easy things that we can do to prevent psychopaths in the police force from having free reign. And unfortunately, because we still don't, Recognize what a psychopath is and their prevalence in society. They they get into these uh, situations and they they run rampant again. I you know I I think policing probably has a higher percentage of psychopaths than other professions because again it it, it would attract people like that probably more psychopaths uh, in policing than there are in nursing for example, or podcasting, uh, a lot of narcissists in podcasting, but I'm not sure how many of them are psychopaths because no fucking power or money in podcasting. I don't know, unless you're Joe Rogan. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, that it would be my, the first step for me would be let's figure out who the psychopaths are and what we're going to do with them. Easy, really, really easy to do and no one's going to argue with it really. I think that, no, I, I think I, I, I agree wholeheartedly
1: with that. I think the only thing that we would want to additionally stamp onto it is make sure we have utter transparency with, with, with records. You know, if, if we do a psychopath test, if we do regular psyche evals, especially if you're a public employee, those records should be made readily available to the public. And I think I mean, that, that that's just one thing I would like to see added on.
0: I mean, there's privacy issues with that. Just because you're a psychopath doesn't mean you uh, or a cop doesn't mean you forfeit your right to privacy of your medical records. But, um, you know, I I think at the very least there should be some level of public governance. Maybe not general public has access to that, but you have a governance body of the general public that uh, who have themselves passed the psychopath test who do have access to those records. And they can uh, keep an eye on it, keep the keep the bastards honest, as uh, we say here. We used to have a political party here called the Democrats, by the way. Is in the their heydays were in the seventies and eighties, and their official uh, motto as a political party was "keep the bastards honest." That was their mm. motto. <laughs> Very Australian political party <laughs> motto. <laughs> no, if it was me, it'd be just keep the cunts honest, but uh, you keep the bastards honest was sort of the uh, polite way of saying it back in then. All
1: right. Well, I know you have to get to your your other show. Uh, thanks a lot for taking time to do with this, me. I really appreciate it.
0: No, thank you, Sean. I I, I really appreciate you coming on and um, sharing with me your your on the ground insights and thoughts and tattoo and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's uh, let's keep in touch, man. We can do more of these. I'm really enjoying these bullshit filter shows where we get the audience to come on and explain to me what's going on. I'm really uh, finding it um, enlightening. So, um, you know, invite yourself back on at some point in the future if you want to explore an issue or get something off your chest.
1: Definitely. Thanks so much for your time.
0: Thanks, buddy. Have a good day. Business is honest. The good guys win. The police are on your side, God is watching you, your standard of living will never decline, and everything is gonna be just fine.